millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's a lot at stake for the European Union when it comes to the uh, development of the Indo-Pacific region because we are an important stakeholder. So security is a key factor here, and we have a lot to bring to this region. What's happening in, in, in Ukraine is exactly one of the reasons for which it's so important to have a collective approach in this region. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, the EU and French ambassadors to Australia Join Professor Rory Medcalf to discuss the EU strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, ahead of the EU Indo-Pacific Forum, which will be hosted by the ANU National Security College on the 25th of May. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. This is a very special episode where we're going to look very closely at the way Europe is engaging with the strategic challenges and opportunities of the Indo-Pacific region. And in particular, we're going to focus on the EU Indo-Pacific strategy released uh, in 2021, but very much a priority of the uh, the EU uh, presidency with uh, with France uh, in the, in the chair for uh, for the first half of 2022 and indeed moving forward throughout this year. So it's a real pleasure to welcome to the studio here at ANU the uh, ambassadors of the European Union here in Canberra, Ambassador Michael Pulch, and also the ambassador of uh, France. Uh, Jean-Pierre Thébault, who's uh, here representing France in the uh, EU chair position. It's great to welcome you both to the studio. Good morning, Rory. Yes, pleasure to be here. So there's so many things from a regional perspective, including from an Australian perspective, we could discuss about why is Europe so engaged in the Indo-Pacific? What are Europe's equities here? But I thought I'd begin with that, that framing question. Why does this region matter to Europe? Why does it matter to the EU? I'll go to you first, uh, Michael. Thanks, Roy, for that question. And uh, there's a lot at stake for the European Union when it comes to the uh, development of the Indo-Pacific region because we are an important stakeholder. Uh, we are invested uh, in this part of the world, and that is quite literally. Um, the EU investment stock is 12 trillion Euro euros. That is much higher than any other partner of the Indo-Pacific, be it the US, China, or Japan as an, as an investor. We are also opening up our market as one of the world's largest consumer market to uh, products from this region, and therefore we are the second largest uh, trading partner. 
So together with investment and trade, we are a part of the economic fabric of this part of the world, of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we create jobs and employment and economic stability. But we do more. Uh, we are also one of the key development partners for many of the uh, Asian countries here. And we bring our concept of peace, stability and values to this region, which we believe is important for the prosperity of the next generation of Europeans as well as, as, as those living in the region itself. That's, that's a uh, very useful articulation, particularly of the, the economic and developmental side. But I might just press you a little bit further on the strategic and security side of the equation, because many of us looking from Australia look, for example, at the impact of, of Chinese power on the region, uh, the many potential flashpoints, the risks and realities of coercion and so forth, and wonder about the future security in this region. So I might ask you, um, I might I just stay with you for a moment, uh, Ambassador Pulch, I might ask you, how does that side matter to Europe? And then I'd be interested also uh, then in hearing of you from Ambassador Tebo. Yeah, it matters a great deal. Um, as we've seen at the Ministerial Forum on the Indo-Pacific that was held in Paris, um, there were three vectors of our interest. Um, security and defense was one of them. Connectivity and digitalization was the second. And the third was global challenges with health and, and climate change and environment. Um, so security is a key factor here, and we have a lot to bring to this region. Just think about what we've already done. Um, Ten years ago, trade between um, Asia and Europe was threatened by piracy around Somalia and the coast of East Africa and Western Indian Ocean. Uh, we've dealt with that um, uh, with, an, with an initiative called Atlant Atalanta, Operation Atalanta, um, and secured trade links continuing between both areas. Now we are facing a conflict in Europe, uh, military aggression by Russia against Ukraine. And amongst, amongst the, the key partners that we have in that core group of like-minded countries are quite a number of Asian partners. Uh, think about Japan, uh, South Korea, Singapore, but also, of course, Australia. So turning to you, Ambassador Tabo, it would be interesting to hear your perspective both from an EU and indeed specifically from a French perspective as well on why the Indo-Pacific matters. First, it matters because we are stakeholders here. We have populations. Just for the French, we have 2 million citizens in the Indo-Pacific. Those citizens, we care about them. And we care about their possibilities in the future, their safety, obviously, but also their development. And we want them and the territories where France is present in the Pacific to enjoy a peaceful, open, rule-based Indo-Pacific. But it's not only French. You know, when you look at the Indo-Pacific in general, you have millions of EU citizens being part of the fabric of the area. The second thing is uh, we acknowledge also that major future challenges are in this region. You mentioned the one on security, but let's speak about climate change. Climate change is a major element of security for the, for the future. And at the same time, the Indo-Pacific is uh, the place where those challenges are rising faster than anywhere else. Uh, just look at the emissions of CO2. You know, the, the amount of, of internationally produced emissions of CO2 
have almost doubled in the Indo-Pacific since 2000. And it's, it's, it's over 50% now of the global emissions in the world. But it's also the place where the remedies for these uh, climate change threats are, are most, probably more than anywhere else more relevant. Think about those hundreds of millions of citizens in the Pacific which are exposed to the consequences like sea rise levels, but also pollutions and also uh, land threats of the climate change. It matters here for the stability of the regions that we here tackle both the challenges, but also that we implement the solutions. So this is another very important element of the EU strategy. And last, last but not least, it's also self-interest. Obviously, uh, our trade here is that we want to push and develop, which is an element of stability of, of balanced development, is, is, is now in majority here in this region. And we want, together with the actors and partners in the region, to further develop it, but also to protect it. So a bunch of very good pragmatic reasons for the EU to be interested in the Pacific and to continue to be interested in the Indo-Pacific and to be willing to become, together with the partners in the region, an integral element of the fabric of the region. So you've touched already, I think, on the the strategy, this um, th- this major uh, blueprint that was issued last year. And of course, I, I think it's um, uh, it's very telling of the times that uh, not only the EU, but a number of other players in the region have, have, have outlined very clear, if you like, plans to, to deal with or to address the, the problems of the region and to look through an Indo-Pacific lens, to look at that integrated two-ocean system as their, as their frame of reference. But why, why this strategy, I guess, is my, my question. What is the strategy uh, setting out to achieve? What are the objectives of the strategy and how are you going to measure success? I might go back to you on that first, Michael. Well, as we pointed out in, in our answers, um, we can only achieve a number of, of the objectives um, for European development if we work together closely with the Indo-Pacific. And that is, I think, at the outset of the strategy that we've devised. Um, and therefore, uh, we have a whole range of objectives that we want to bring into into that debate. And it is not only the strategy, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy itself, but it is also enabled by a number of others that are around that. For instance, Global Gateway, uh, a new initiative that we set up to create more connectivity and infrastructure between Asia and Europe and between Asian countries to respond a bit to similar infrastructure uh, programs um, and connectivity programs by other Asian countries. Uh, we also have a strategic compass that we adopted uh, recently and that sets out our strategic vision of the world uh, for a five to ten years period and how we as Europeans want to respond to that. So we have intertwined, if you wish, our of our future and the and our vision for a peaceful, stable and secure future uh, of of the world between Europe and the Indo-Pacific, and that is a bit what is at the core of our Indo-Pacific strategy. Now, how do we measure success? We will we will measure it, I, I believe, by um, the way that we are creating these kind of new webs or intensify the existing network of, con- of connections um, with the region. 
Um, and there are very concrete examples, whether we have a civil aviation agreement with ASEAN, whether we have an initiative of bringing together Asian and European countries to work on uh, issues like terrorism and non-proliferation um, and, and organized crimes, um, whether there are initiatives to draw European youth and Asian youth together in a Rasmus program that allows for an exchange or whether it is a Horizon Europe on scientific uh, cooperation. There is a lot that we can bring to that region. And let me just talk about the pandemic for a moment. Um, the entire vaccination program here in Australia was based on a vaccine developed in Europe, in, in Mainz, uh, by a company called BioNTech and produced in Europe and shipped to Australia. A, a very clear example of what we can achieve when we are working together. Uh, Ambassador Tabo, I might uh, build on that with you for a moment and ask about whether the, to what extent is the strategy essentially a, a, an aggregation of national approaches of the many different Europe or many varying uh, European national approaches or whether it's something larger that um, potentially lifts, uh, lifts other European powers to the the level of engagement in the region that, uh, that for example, France um, has already demonstrated? Definitely, it's larger. First, <clears throat> Europe didn't wait it to be interested by what's happening in the Indo-Pacific you know, as of, as back as, as 1996, uh, when we created ASM, was the initiative then at President Chirac and the uh, Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, this was a, a clear signal that we considered that we had stakes here in the region. And this has developed over the years. And, and just to clarify, ASM is the, it's the uh, Asia-Europe. Uh, it is leaders. the Asia-Europe meeting, which, yeah. which became an annual uh, leaders meeting. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, the strategy is being developed, in fact, uh, since over 20 years. Uh, after that, there is what Michael said, you know, it's quite eloquent. 12 trillion, uh, of euros of investments in the Indo-Pacific. The largest and twice bigger than the one of the US, seven times bigger than the one of China. We are stakeholders here. Um, and, and the size of the trade. But last but not least, I think that what is important is that at the same time, there is, as there has been, and you're right, a realization that, that we needed something structured. We needed something that anticipates the changes and not only that does provides, um, you know, fora or possibilities for, for discussion when things do happen. And this is the change. Yes, it has been initiated within Europe with France adopting an Indo-Pacific strategy. President Macron outlined this uh, strategy when he had a state visit in Sydney in Australia in 2018. And we are very happy that together with our colleagues, EU partners, together with the EU Commission, we were able to develop further on that, first on some national Indo-Pacific strategies, and now on an aggregated, full-strength, full-developed EU Indo-Pacific strategy. This is a game-changer. And, and, and Michael was right in stressing it in, on the outset. You know, this clearly proves that, in, that the EU has a long-term planning, a long-term vision of the region, not only because it is in its self-interest, because what's happened also here in the region matters for us, for our stability, for our security, for our prosperity. We don't want any Indo-Pacific. We want an Indo-Pacific, which is a partner, 
which is uh, a partner with whom we build things and we build those things in the interest of the population of both Europe and the Indo-Pacific. And for that, we need projects. So that's the reason for which Michael mentioned the Global Great Waste Project. You know, it's 500, it's 300 billion of euro, half a trillion Australian dollar to be spent on infrastructures up to 2027, you know, in just five years time. It's a huge investment program. It's Team Europe making it, meaning the EU and all its member states. And I think this is a part of the game changing. And one observation I would make here, we might come back to this later on, is that um, apart from anything else, this would appear to give countries in this region options. It would give countries in this region choices so that uh, when, for example, we're looking at the question of infrastructure and development, it's not simply uh, do you go all the way with the Belt and Road or do you insist that you have nothing to do with Chinese infrastructure and somehow go all the way with the United States? It, it, it seems to be that uh, you're, you're expanding the range of choices that countries in this region have correct. for their development. That's, that's correct. And, and there is another element as well. Um, we want to be a benchmark for a, a successful infrastructure program. Because we emphasize transparency, we emphasize stake, stakeholders' um, uh, cooperation, uh, we, we emphasize good government and, and governance in, in these programs. Um, and I think that in itself uh, is also a, a, a change of the way that a lot of these programs have been run in the past when we introduced that. On top of that, we would like to also emphasize our green ambition that we have with these programs so that they also lead um, to a world that is, has more focus on climate change policy. So it's sustainable in every sense, uh, environmental, but also political uh, and economic. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go to a challenging question on the, the the tensions globally and the tensions in Europe where we're well, not just tensions but the the outright conflict in fact that we've witnessed uh, in Ukraine we're recording this in in April uh, 2022 and of course we've seen for some time now this, this really the outrage of the Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine, uh, the violence there, and the impact that that conflict has had on the European security outlook. And so the pressing question for you on the Indo-Pacific, and I'll actually go to you first, Jean-Pierre, if I may, and then, and then to Michael, is how does the EU balance its interests in the Indo-Pacific against its interests in Europe? Uh, will, for example, the challenges arising from Russia's invasion of Ukraine undermine the strength of the EU's commitment to the Indo-Pacific? At the contrary. At the contrary. You know, first, I would absolutely challenge the idea that Ukraine is a European question, European only. It is European question, obviously, but not only. What is at stake in Ukraine, you know, is, is a you know, the values on which our the international order is being based. It's the values of national sovereignty, territorial integrity, but also, you know, refusal of violence as, as, as a mean to solve disputes. And this is what's happening in Ukraine needs to be opposed. And we are very happy that the world opposed it. You know, of 140 countries, you know, regularly have voted resolution in the UN against, you know, the Russian aggression. 
we have very happy, obviously, that, you know, a lot of stakeholders here in the Indo-Pacific have joined also, despite maybe being geographically distant, but being, in fact, very aware of what is at stake. What happens in Ukraine if let unnoticed, if let happening, is something that could happen next in this region? So it's not the other side of the world. It's a part of the same world. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, symbolically, the uh, Paris uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Conference, which has been the first of its kind after the adoption of this strategy, has taken place on the 22nd of February, a time where the tensions were obvious, the risks were obvious in Ukraine. And we decided, the presidency, France, together with the EU, uh, that we, we, should, we should keep it despite the, the, the odds. And, and there were 60, you know, countries represented at ministers' level of secretary generals of international organizations, which means that this is also a very important subject, and we symbolically wanted this to take place so that the decisions that uh, Michael mentioned, these big decisions with a lot of money attached and with a lot of political power attached to it, would, would, you know, would be made, would be announced in the way we wanted to announce them. And last but not least, um, we think that more than ever, the challenges that are here in these regions are core for the future safety, stability, including of Europe, for the world. We think that contributing effectively, strongly in, 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 in having a rule-based order, in demonstrating that there are choices, exactly what Michael said, choices in terms of models, choices in terms of how you invest, choices in, in who are your lives, choices among your, in your values is extremely important. And it is time for Europe to play its full role in the Indo-Pacific. It is already an unknown major player in the Indo-Pacific. It must now make it make a use of its presence, make a use of its possibilities of influence, but also in partnership to contribute shape the future face of the Indo-Pacific. So I I would say that what's happening in, in, in Ukraine is exactly one of the reasons for which it's so important to have a collective approach in this region. And I insist on the aspect of collective. It cannot be unilateral. And the EU wants it because the EU wants to be a sovereign partner, but also a respected and influential partner worldwide. This is the motto of the French presidency of the EU currently, you know, enlarging, strengthening the sovereign possibilities for the EU to be a globally respected and very much involved partner. Those are nice speeches. We will be judged at our actions, I know, and it's good because we are pragmatic people also and we will make the difference and contribute with all like-minded countries to make the difference. Thank you for that. Uh, and I, I'm glad that you've emphasized the global character of the, uh, the challenge to order, the, to order and to values that we've seen in Ukraine. Uh, Ambassador Pulch, what do you think? Well, what I, what I believe is we have seen already the synergy effects of the European policy um, reacting to what is happening at its doorsteps in, in Ukraine directly but also working with partners around the world, with our transatlantic partners, with whom we have a very intensive cooperation for decades already on security matters as a member of, of NATO, of, of many European member states. Um, 
but also here with Indo-Pacific partners. Um, and uh, I believe um, in the run-up of the conflict, we've seen this very clearly by having the Munich Security Conference back-to-back -back with the uh, Ministerial Forum on the Indo-Pacific, which allowed many countries, such as Foreign Minister Payne, to, att to attend both of these events. So um, that discussion brought back to uh, our partners here in this region that this is not something that is far away. This is an issue that um, threatens the global order on which also stability in the Indo-Pacific region is based. And it shows to the European population how important the Indo-Pacific strategy is for our own security because we get support from our countries from that region uh, and we get it because they understand that we are on the same side when it comes to values, when it comes to a, a vision for the future of this, of this globe. And, uh, and therefore, um, I believe the synergy effects will be a driving factor uh, of our, of making our Indo-Pacific uh, policy a priority for, for the future. Uh, so, I'm, I'm glad you've uh, you've mentioned the uh, the Paris Ministerial Forum in particular. Is we, we may come back to that in a moment. But uh, Ambassador Thibault, you had a point you I think wished to add. Just to to stress two things, which I think uh, because you mentioned, you know, there were there were other Indo-Pacific strategies all over the world. Um, it's true, but ours I think is is has two very important specificities. Uh, beyond the fact that it's rule based and it wants to have a level playing field, it, it's 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 geographical uh, um, dimension. You know, for us, the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy and it's it's important for the future does encompass from from Eastern Africa to the Pacific Island countries. It, it's uh, it's uh, it's a complex. Uh, diverse but very interconnected area and this is important this is the scope of our ambition and the second thing is we put climate change and climate change consequences at the core of it michael stressed it very much you know uh, climate change is a future security threat also for the region and we need to address it as as a huge element central element uh, and you here in Australia, you know this, you know, you have the calls of the Pacific Island countries, of many other countries, large or smaller. This is a key element on which we must definitely make progress. And the EU, which is a strong, you know, uh, actor on the international scene of an efficient action in this respect, wants together with the partners here to, to try to tackle this issue. Without climate change policy, we won't tackle what is a major threat for for the planet and for the region? Yeah, I think there's no there's no question that this region is an epicenter of those those challenges. Uh, and I'm glad you've mentioned other Indo-Pacific strategies because one of the uh, questions I think that many observers have of the strategic picture is how the national and collective approaches of 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 different players different nations or different groupings how these overlap about perhaps how they differ as well uh so for example we've got the uh so-called free and open indo-pacific uh, uh strategy that japan and the united states in their own ways have advocated uh we've got australia's own uh, very active role as uh, a power in, in, in framing the region uh, as the Indo-Pacific and using that as a basis for strategy. We've got India's approach. We've got the 
ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, uh, it's becoming quite a crowded space, and that's good. Uh, that's healthy, I think. Uh, but the big question is, what do you see as the convergence, uh, the overlap, or in some cases, uh, the differences among these approaches? I'll go to you first, uh, Ambassador Pulch. Uh, thank you, Rory. Um, well, first of all, I, I believe that uh, convergence um, and overlap um, is probably what defines the various uh, strategies uh, or visions, sometimes they're also called differently, that we've seen uh, emanating now for, from more and more countries directly or partners in the region. Um, uh, if you think about how fast the development was on the European side, Jean-Pierre mentioned quite rightly that France was the first um, member state um, to come out with a, a vision for this region. Um, and shortly afterwards, were two more member states, Germany and Netherlands. And only three years later, we expanded that to the era, uh, entire European continent by having an EU vision for this um, uh, for this region. Um, so largely, uh, there is a convergent and an overlap in what we want to achieve with our partners. Our platform uh, allows to enable our our various webs of contacts that we have bilaterally and multilaterally with partners in the region. So we don't replace that. We just incorporate this in a, in, into our broader outlook. And I think that's an important aspect. There are some differences as well. Geographical um, description of the region is is, is one. Uh, the emphasis, of course, uh, uh changes a bit whether you are in the South Pacific part, uh, whether you are an ASEAN country, whether you are India, or whether you are Europe. Um, but um, what what I think is encouraging for us is that since we uh, we, are, we have based it on quite successful long-standing policies that we already had, um, we've, we've seen uh, in the direction of our partners uh, a lot of positive feedback. And, and so uh, uh, we are encouraged by that reaction um, and see that uh, the countries actually would like the EU to be part of this region, which is important. We are accepted and we are wanted. Um, but also uh, that I think the way we've defined our contribution is the one that also countries would like us to be present. So just to emphasize there, you, you would um – focus on the broad convergence or consistencies among these different visions, whether it's uh, the EU and ASEAN or whether it's uh, the EU and potentially the United States, Japan, Australia and others. Is that is that reasonable? I think that is the approach that we're taking. After all, we want to have a consensual moving forward as much as we can. Um, and, and obviously, we would like to start with those parts where we are already successfully cooperating and, and creating this web of, of confident uh, cooperation and and the, the the type of interaction and, and that has uh, brought us to this to this um, new strategy. Uh, Ambassador Tebow, we obviously want to have an efficient action. Uh, if we want to be seen as as relevant, we need to to build on communalities. Um, as Mike mentioned, uh, the first element. However, on which we will judge our possibility to engage or not will be rule-based order, will be democracy and choice. 
Um, the second thing which, which I think is important, at least for the EU, is, is the centrality of ASEAN. Uh, this is a very important notion and a notion on which our strategy has been based officially and strongly. I remember ASEM in 96 since the start. Europe has been willing and is still engaging very actively with ASEAN and this is a core partner for whatever we will do here. And, and, but at the end of the day, partnerships, like-mindedness will be the key. Uh, we are bringing here all the elements we've mentioned, our rank in terms of trade investment, largest, uh, you know, development aid provider in the, in the whole region. Um, the, the, these new additional funds we are bringing, uh, half a trillion Australian dollar on, on communication, et cetera. The more will be uh, possibilities to have like-minded partners being ready to leverage together with us or us being able to leverage some projects from partners in the regions, you know, the better. What we want is to have an active conversation here and a global understanding and overview of the region and so opportunities to engage. So it's an open end by the EU, by the member states of the EU in their capacity as member states, but as capacity as stakeholders of the EU to be present here. And, and that's the reason of this uh, forum. Uh, we together with ANU do organize on the 25th of May to make more people being aware, not only about the existence of this strategy, but of why it matters and why it has, it is a substantial offer of cooperation and of opportunities. It's unseen. And, and, and as you mentioned, what is happening in the world, the way the world is being shaken by, by ambitions and, and sometimes uh, brutal actions is a wake up call that we need more than ever such kind of strategies. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. As we turn to uh, defining the principles that underscore the European engagement with the region, and I'm glad you pointed to some of those uh, there, um, Jean-Pierre, that principles such as rules-based order and uh, respect for international law uh, and so forth, and certainly the focus on sovereignty. Uh, I think we can find a thread that that runs through many of the Indo-Pacific visions, some of them 
manifest in strategies with with resourcing and objectives and so forth. We also find something of a a challenge, though, which I'll come back to at the end of the conversation, and that challenge, I think, is going to be about how all of uh, the various Indo-Pacific approaches contend with the role of China um, in the region. So I will park that for a moment, but I want to come back to it because I think it's it, it really is key. Key for us also, and recording this from Australia and, and having worked a lot on Australia's own uh, vision of the Indo-Pacific over the years, um, I would say is the role of Australia in this region. And so I'd be very interested in hearing uh, from, from, from you both uh, how uh, the EU strategy uh, envisages the role of Australia uh, in the Indo-Pacific. I'll go to you first, Michael. Thanks, Roy, for your question. And um, for me, as an EU ambassador to Australia, the Indo-Pacific strategy um, clearly defined the role of Australia much better than uh, what we had in the past when we spoke about this region as Asia-Pacific. And uh, on Asia-Pacific, it was forever unclear uh, where were the boundaries. Was Australia and New Zealand included or the Pacific Islands included in these strategies or not? And now we are clear. Um, it is the uh, Indian Ocean, it is the Pacific Ocean, and Australia is right in the middle of both. They, uh, and therefore, even geographically, you can see the centrality uh, of Australia in, in, that, in that part. Um, and it comes at a moment um, where uh, like-mindedness and, and the, the working together between countries with the same value and democracy-based um, uh, constitution has become so important, um, and that gives us an anchor here. Um, I'm I'm therefore very pleased that we we now have a strategy that defines our clearly who is part of that and and how we see the the grouping of of our of our partners um, globally, um, and therefore I believe Australia will play a very important part of it. Uh, we want to. Uh, upgrade our relations with Australia. Uh, that is the the vision that we've put forward. Um, and uh, uh, it is a good sign that Foreign Minister Payne uh, attended the first ministerial forum in Paris right at the outset. Uh, Ambassador Thibault, what, what do you say? I would say that uh, we are happy that uh, Australia is willing to be part of it. And, uh, but there is no surprise, I think. You know, um, I can say that uh, since the onset and since uh, uh, the visit of uh, President Macron in, here in Australia in 2018, when he outlined our French strategy, if he did come to Australia and made it in Australia, it was a sure sign, and he said it, that he thought and considered that for France, Australia was the core of an Indo-Pacific strategy. So, you know, there is no need to elaborate on that. Um, it, it, we have proven, uh, the proof is in the pudding, you know, and so we've proven our commitment in this. And, and the fact that it's, it's a shared view by the EU is important also. But as it is a regional strategy, what is important is not only to focus to one or the other country. It is important that we constantly look 
as a transversal approach. Um, like-mindedness, I mentioned, is a key element of a successful strategy. We can, we can succeed in being, you know, very happy among us, um, a very limited number of countries of the fact that we think the same. Uh, the success in the region, because it's a success that does matter not only for the whole region, but also for the world, is enabling a broader engagement. So the key element in the EU Indo-Pacific strategy is insisting on this like-mindedness and having an open hand and inclusive approach to whatever countries are willing to be part of. And, and the, as Michael mentioned, you know, the, the strong reaction, you know, the first, you know, 60 countries and, and international organizations represented at the highest political level in, in Paris for the foreign is a sure sign that it, it has an attractiveness. And by the way, I can announce it because I think it's, it's already news, you know, uh, the, the EU will have each year and probably under each presidency and event on the EU uh, on the EU Indo-Pacific strategy, we want to push this very actively with all the relevant partners, interested partners, the like-minded partners. So this is an important element. You know, we it is a, a policy of open end. It's a policy based on project. It's a policy based on actual means, huge means, which are open. And obviously, Australia can play a role there if it so wishes. It is, at the end of the day, the decision of Australia and the sovereign decision of its people. And I think we're all being uh, very, I think, very, very clear, but also very, very diplomatic about, I guess, the role of Australia in the region and the role of the different inclusive uh, mechanisms for coping with regional challenges. There's also the question, of course, of of, of exclusive mechanisms of, of countries in the region uh, or in the region or with stakes in the region uh, building other diplomatic arrangements to help cope from their perspective with the uh, security challenges. And so the Quad has been uh, a major part of the Indo-Pacific um, diplomatic landscape in, in recent years. Of course, last year, the uh, the AUKUS uh, deal with um, Australia, Britain and the United States uh, attracted a lot of controversy, uh, seen, of course, as an exclusive arrangement um, and for the role that it will play. The US alliances, uh, the various alliances bilaterally and, and other arrangements, again, um, look more exclusive than inclusive. I think one of the questions a lot of us as observers are dealing with is how do we reconcile the inclusive approaches to regional cooperation in the Indo-Pacific and the more exclusive arrangements, um, however uh, their participants may feel that they're justified in terms of balancing Chinese power. How do we reconcile these two? I wonder if either of you could uh, comment on that. I might go to you, Michael. Well, we have decided for our Indo-Pacific strategy to, to be it an inclusive approach. Um, we invite uh, all uh, countries of the region to be part of that. We've outlined what our engagement with this region would be and on what our vision for this region would be. And every country who shares that vision and is prepared to work with it on that basis is invited to join. And, and that's uh, the modus operandi that we do have in Europe. It has worked in Europe, and therefore we bring it also to this region. Um, it is for other um, organizations uh, and fora to define 
uh, how their exclusiveness or inclusiveness um, will be handled. Um, and and, and uh, it's not for us to, to comment on that. Um, but uh, for us at, at the European uh, level, we have to obviously see how our bilateral partnerships with some of the important countries of that region uh, uh, overlaps and converges with what we want to, uh, to achieve with a broader-based Indo-Pacific strategy. And, and that, indeed, is a task that we have to uh, fulfill. Um, Jean-Pierre mentioned the fact that uh, we now set up annual summits. Uh, we have now an envoy for the Indo-Pacific. We set up internal systems in our foreign ministries and other ministries and organizations to deal with this. So we, we create a a base and a platform to drive that debate forward. Um, and our vision, of course, uh, for a region would be to make it as inclusive as possible because ultimately that creates stability. Well, would you like to add to that, uh, Jean-Pierre? Um, I think Michael has, has very made I've made the point very clearly. We, we are for cooperation and not for confrontation. This is, this is a starting base because this is exactly what we... We've built in Europe, we, we, we try to expand it with partners, but on an equal basis. So we have respect for our partners also. At the same time, we are not blind. We've seen now very much aware of the geopolitical dynamics that play in the region. And uh, so let's be frank also, there is no naivety on our side. Uh, but to summarize, um, Instead of, of wondering what we would do in case of, of dramatic change in deterioration in the region, we think that it is much better to focus immediately without waiting on what we should do to avoid such an outcome. And this is exactly what the EU and its member states is proposing to the region. Let's build on communalities. Let's build as a matter of principle on the international rule-based order and the recognized uh, principle of international order, of transparency, of mutual respect, of sovereignty, of refusal of use of force to settle uh, disputes. And for that, we propose projects. We proposed uh, to be co-funding or funding, uh, you know, with all like-minded partners, the projects that matters for the future of the regions. And once again, this very strong emphasis on climate change. We were discussing the role of Australia. We, the EU is looking for, a, and France in particular, but we're looking for a very strong role of uh, that we could play together with Australia in this region, the Pacific Island states. Those are states which survival, mere survival, you know, might be put in jeopardy in only some years' time if we are not listening to their plea for more climate action. Not only mitigation, but also, you know, actual measures at the world scene to really embark the international community in this respect. And, and all the other elements which are, which are ensuring for those countries, as many other countries largely populated in the region, you know, a, a human social stability and offering also an alternative eventually to other models and choices, which would be more unilateral or not based on rules and and, and, and principles of transparency. So this is what it is at the core of this EU strategy, and this is what we want to promote. And if we can promote it actively, 
is a strong Australian participation with a strong support, understanding uh, of Australia, we would be very happy for that. And the same way, we will and be ready to work with all the partners in Asia based on the principle of the centrality of ASEAN, you know, to, to make this happen. We need to defy and, and uh, the, the logic of the blocks. We need to be inclusive, at least to propose efficiently to be inclusive and to uh, avoid any, any shift. But once again, we are not naive. Thank you for that, uh, Jean-Pierre. And I think that's... Uh you, 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 you very um, eloquently uh, preempted my last question, uh, which was which, which I will actually direct back to to Michael, if I may, and that's really about the role of China in the region. Um, so I think we've we've heard again a very very strong um, enunciation of principles of sovereignty, of non coercion, of human development, of human rights, human dignity, and of course countering climate change. And I think all of those. Uh, you know, I would like to imagine are, are endorsed by a wide range of countries um, in the Indo-Pacific stakeholders in this region as well. That also speaks to the global challenge, including the way it's manifested with with Russian aggression in Europe in in, in defending sovereignty, defending uh, you know the very basic principles of, of of the UN Charter. Those of us who watch the strategic situation in the Indo-Pacific are concerned about how it could. Well, deteriorate. We worry, of course, as I'm sure um, European partners do, of the you know the possibility of uh, of conflict in the region, of conflict across the Taiwan Strait, of greater coercion, uh, a whole lot of conflict possibilities, uh, many of which have have China as um, a uh, a common factor. Watching this region and watching how this strategic situation could deteriorate in the future. Um, do you see ways in which the European approach could adjust or could change uh, if Asia does move to a war to a more confrontational uh, position? Well, what we said at the outset when we defined our Indo-Pacific strategy was that um, we have to bring this in line and, and base it on our individual um, cooperation with uh, key. Um, countries of the region, uh, and we had a China policy to start with. Um, in that uh, China policy, we've shown that uh, Europe has reacted to a shift in China's emphasis. Um, we define our policy with China uh, differently from the time when I was posted to Beijing. Uh, uh, and um, we will move forward by reviewing our relationship with China. And of course, you mentioned one of the key questions that is before the, the um, uh, government uh, of that country at this, at this very point in time. Um, we see a war in Europe, and there's no other word about it. Um, and um, you know, every country is now asked to take a stand on that. Do we accept that? Do we allow that? Do we support this uh, or not? Um, and obviously, uh, reactions to that will in some ways influence how European governments, but also European, uh, people will look to our relationship with key, with key partners here. And the, this will define in some ways also 
how much we can see that country as a partner going forward if it if it responds or not to one of the uh, real threats and challenges that we face not only as Europeans but as a world community we shouldn't forget the world has condemned Russia on what it's doing it very clearly did so in two uh, resolutions recently um, and uh, we want to make it clear to every country that it's position on this issue is is a defining factor not the only one but a defining factor uh, our policies will react to that and we review our partnerships as we go along ambassador tebo any final thoughts you know we we there is no prejudice against china we want china to be uh, a partner a cooperation partner we recognize China as an economic competitor. and um, But also, we emphasize the fact that China is a systematic rival. And, and from this point of view, um, everything that Micah mentioned uh, makes sense. We, we, you know, we, we, we expect from partners of the EU that they are consistent. And their words must not be hollow or empty, wishful thinking, you know, statements. Uh, we have a situation which happens to be in Ukraine, but which is putting the world or whole world order, uh, you know, in jeopardy, possibly. The, the, the way each and individual country will react, not only taking into consideration its short-term interest, but also the interest of these rule-based order, uh, will obviously affect the way we will looking at each and every individual country. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, in the meanwhile, we want not to just wait and see. We want to act. And this is exactly the core of, uh, of the uh, EU Indo-Pacific strategy. We want that the EU here does contribute to this peaceful structuring of the region. We want that uh, countries here um, have reliable international partners. We are ready not only to invest, to contribute, but also to uh, to involve with them in preserving, keeping, making those values, you know, alive and being dominant for the future. And this is a very important thing which is happening at the same time here. But once again, both are interconnected. And you can count, I think the Australian public can count on the EU to be very active uh, in the years to come further, to be willing to engage with Australia in all the areas where together with Australia we can make a huge difference, especially here in the Pacific. And once again, I insist on climate change. There are major decisions still to be taken after Glasgow and by the end of this year, and we need collectively to make it a success. And we have concrete actions also to, 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 to engage because we need to showcase that there are choices and that values matters and that values can make a difference for a free, open Indo-Pacific regions as we in huge majority wish. 
So thank you, Ambassador. That's a compelling note to um, conclude our conversation on. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the National Security College hosting uh, a forum with you uh, very soon on the uh, European, on the EU, Indo-Pacific strategy. I think there are so many questions that our conversation both uh, informs but also (laughs) raises. Uh, It's been really illuminating for me. and I particularly like the way that you've pointed to the multidimensional character of European engagement in the Indo-Pacific, the role, for example, of development, the role of uh, principles, investment, and, and really, if you like, preparing the ground so that the risks of, uh, of confrontation are diminished. Thank you very much uh, for your time, uh, Ambassador Pulch from the European Union and uh, Ambassador Tebo uh, from France, but representing the uh, role of France in the EU presidency. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thanks a lot, Murray. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.